You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible and discuss what it means, what it doesn't mean, what people think it means. <laughs> what we think it means, whether we're we right or wrong. <laughs> and we, we hope that uh, through all of this, whatever it is we're doing, uh, some people are helped out by it. So um, that's <laughs> but that's what we do here. So um, One of the many things we do here. Yes, yeah. So, so um, I was going to... So yeah, things are kind of weird this weekend. I actually just yesterday got back from uh, Dallas. We took the family down to uh, see the the Dallas Aquarium. The girls hadn't seen that yet, so that's it a was, fun trip. It was a good time. Yeah, did that with my kids. That was a lot of fun. Well, we took you on that trip too. Yeah, yeah, that's when I was yeah. living down there. So we we made a day of that. But yeah, the kids are getting about where they're where they're decent to travel nowadays without <laughs> having full on meltdowns, and it was. It's kind of fun because we we left like right at eight in the morning and got right back right about eight in the evening. When we That's went to the aquarium day. and then we, yeah yeah then we went to Kura uh, Sushi Revolving Sushi after going to the aquarium. So cause that's the kind of family we are. <laughs> yeah, no sushi is always a good choice with us. So, <laughs> but you Just know say, before think, we okay, oh, say I I like the aquarium, but I think I liked Kura a little better because you actually get to eat the fish. <laughs> Um, instead of just looking at them. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's about right. So, <laughs> but I I think before we get into scripture, we actually ought to take a moment because people watching on YouTube and hopefully those listening will automatically know there's a difference in the setup this week. And our supporters have allowed us to upgrade some of my equipment. And you know, y'all think y'all are just getting better sound quality, <laughs> and I have to say this is like amazing for me because. I can run the air conditioner while we're recording. So oh, right, yes. this, is, <laughs> this is a big deal. And so we appreciate all of our supporters who help us do things like this to make life better. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, we would not be able to have uh, the setup we do without you. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's definitely helped us improve our sound quality, improve our studio functionality. Um, <laughs> we're not... <laughs> And especially, again, on Emily's End, where the last few episodes in the middle of summer, she's been in there roasting because she has to turn the air off. So this, the microphone she has now rejects a little more sound, uh, a little more background noise, so she doesn't have yeah. to, to bake while we're doing a show. It's, it's kind of nice. Well, the last episode, you know, you got uh, the whole frog concert, so, you know, we won't have nearly as much of that, so hopefully people won't feel too deprived on that end of things. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So... Well, uh, but that, getting all that out of the way, I think we should, uh, should probably get rolling. Uh, you said we're in Second Samuel 15, starting in verse 30. Yeah, yeah, and because we kind of did a little teaser, I thought we were actually going to get to David's flight to Mount Olive uh, last week, and we didn't quite make it. Uh, we ended with the story about Abathar and Zadok uh, appearing with the ark and David sending it back home. And so uh, we're going to pick up in verse 30 because David's going to continue his trek. And we're going we're gonna to meet a lot of people. Uh, we've already met most of them. Well, about half of them. We still got a few more to go. 
And the importance of each of these individuals is they reveal something about the political atmosphere within Israel at this time. And, and they show us what's going on within the kingdom beyond just Jerusalem. Because I think one of the things we need to bear in mind is there's no TVs at this point. There's no radios. Facebook is non-existent. So things could be very, very localized in their impact and take many years to actually unfold within the rest of the nation. And so we've got this intrigue going on within the city of Jerusalem itself, but the rest of the nation hasn't caught up to what's going on. There could still be parts of Israel who are totally unaware of Bathsheba and Uriah and what occurred with them. So we, we need to stop and think about the fact that David's popularity within Jerusalem and his effectiveness within that city are not the same as what was going on in the countryside and the hillside. And so... Mm -hmm. We're getting, we're getting some uh, insight into that, and we're going to be getting into some passages that show us that the kingdom is still very divided, because David, even though he's the king, Saul had great support within the kingdom before he arrived. And so as we move into chapter 16, we're going to see how that's still a factor, despite all the great things that David has done at this point. And I think we forget about that as readers of the Bible, because we know what was wrong with Saul. We understand that Saul was not an appropriate king. But if you're living in Jerusalem or, you know, Israel, because Jerusalem wasn't even the capital when Saul was king, if you're living in Israel, the idea that the previous king might not have been, a, been as great as you thought he was, the king that God anointed and appointed to, to lead the nation, that's got to take a major paradigm shift and perspective shift that a mm -hmm. lot of people have difficulty with. and. You know, you can think about uh, American politics where we have presidents, okay, they four terms, and, you know, whatever party their president is elected, whenever it's the next time and the other party's president gets elected, how often are we hearing now, not my president, you know, from either side? And right. so, you know, if we're having this big of difficulties turning loose of a leader that's only been in office four years, think of how, how hard it would be when we're talking about leaders that rule for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you, know, try, you know, trying to find some way for us to, to grab hold of this and, and turn it into something we can understand and relate to. Uh, sometimes, you know, the, the examples I can provide fall short, but I think that one kind of works. So, yeah, I, I think if, uh, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So verse 30, um, again, chapter 15 in Second Samuel. But David went up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. So going, going barefoot, first off, is a sign of mourning. Uh, we see this in other places in the Bible. And this mountain, Mount Olives, what's very interesting is when we're talking about it in relationship to a specific person, when we have an actual proper name applied to it. We only have two people, and that's David and Jesus. And so we're starting to see some foreshadowing of what's going to be happening in the New, um, in the New Testament, because we've got these two men who are going to Mount Olive at a time when they've been betrayed. Betrayal by someone close to them is one of the central themes in the two stories that unite them. And they're also being accompanied by those who remain faithful to them. So David's got his followers. Jesus has. Uh, his disciples, minus Judas, of course. Uh, David goes weeping. 
when Jesus is on Mount Olives at one point, he is um, sorrowful to even to death is how I believe Mark put it. There's other connections that we're going to get into when we get into the Gospels. We gave that teaser last week. But what we should note is that Mount Olive is where the rejected king goes until the throne can be reclaimed. So we have this immediate connection that in the overarching theme that I don't think we can really miss if we're paying attention. Now, of course, when Jesus returns from, on, actually returns to Mount Olive to reign over the earth, his throne's going to be established forever. And so once again, we see this, how David is, he's a great king, but he's never going to be greater than Jesus himself. And we also see how Jesus participates in the experiences of humanity. And he's not above that or beyond that. But it's David's flight to Mount Olive that makes the prophecy in Zechariah so powerful. And, and I want to just read part of this verse so you can kind of get a glimpse. And it's Zechariah 14.4. says, On that day his feet will stand on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to west. Now, this is part of the description of the day of the Lord, the day when God establishes his reign on earth. And we actually see, you know, the, the feast of the bridegroom, uh, where according to Mishrashic literature, we eat Leviathan because this is how final God's authority is going to be and how great it's going to extend out. Uh, this is the place of departure. Um, I'm sorry. Totally got lost in my notes there for a second. Uh, you know, David is going to flee there in shame. Is basically what the story is about. He he's lost his kingdom, and and it seems like even for a moment that Jesus loses his kingdom when he goes to Mount Olive. I mean, when you think about everything that follows, yeah. That, well, that 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 was one of the things I was that I was kind of noticing. It's like in this moment where it seems like the king is defeated, it's kind of begins with the Mount of Olives. Exactly. And that's what this whole part of the story is about, is will God's king be defeated? And we're having that foreshadowing in David. And, you know, when Jesus arrives and, uh, you know, even his ascent from Mount Olive in the final days, that, that in the final days of his earthly ministry in the first place, it, there's a great theological and political statement here. And when his reign is being reestablished, again, that theological and political statement is being restated that Jesus is greater. And so David will return from Mount Olive, and he, he will regain his throne, and of course Jesus will too. But this is a really good example of why we have to know these Old Testament narratives. We can't discount what's written in the Old Testament as irrelevant because when Jesus was on this earth, walking on this earth, and he chose Mount Olive to, to be the central location of so much of his ministry, the people listening to him and following him, they would have got it. They would have known it. And I think we forget sometimes that Jesus' audience didn't think that the Old Testament was irrelevant. Knowing the Old Testament and the narratives and the stories within that is part of how they maintained their national, ethnic, and cultural identity through the Babylonian exile, through mm -hmm. Roman occupation. It's where they derived their principles of worship. And it, it was so central to their identity that they had to know these stories in order to know who they were so they could survive. And, you know, we... We Christians, we don't have that same 
fervor for, for knowing scripture that the Jewish people would have had to have had. Because in Judaism, you don't get to practice it one day a week, like so many Americanized Western Christians get to do. Oh, I go to church on Sunday, so therefore I'm a Christian. And nowadays, there's people who don't even go to church on Sundays and claim they're Christians. Uh, you know, they just know they're Christians because they're not anything else. But in Judaism, that religion really defines your entire being. I mean, it rules. Even today, people still practicing uh, what Judaism is today. Everything in their life is ruled and governed by the principles found within the Old Testament. And so, you know, we're talking, you know, how they cook, how they eat, how they dress, their sex lives. All of these things are still very much rooted in these Old Testament stories. And I think that if we make the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament is irrelevant or that somehow portrays a different God than the New Testament, and so we don't give it the same credence or honor as the New Testament, we're missing out on the depth and the richness of the New Testament narratives. And yeah, that is one of my soapboxes that I'll climb on every time somebody gives us a chance. So, um, but like most events in Samuel, the writer isn't just pointing to the future. He's actually pointing, uh, drawing from the past. David's walking with no shoes on. He's covering his head. He's weeping publicly. So if we backed up to chapter 15 and we read, I'm sorry, chapter 13 and read verse 19, we would see, and Tamar put ashes on her head and her, tore her long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying as she went. So now it's David who is basically doing what Tamar did. I mean, he's got the head covered. Uh, she puts ashes on her head. Uh, he changes his appearance. He ad adopts the garb of a mourner, and he's the one crying publicly in the streets. So every evil that David has committed or every evil that David has allowed to go unaddressed in his own kingdom is now being enacted in his own life. And he's not going to be unaffected by the things that he has done or failed to do within his reign. And, you know, this is the fulfillment of Nathan's word to David at the time when he was confronted uh, about his sin with Bathsheba. And what I find to be so interesting in this is even as we move forward, even though Tamar's name isn't mentioned, she's still very much a part of the story. We still feel her influence when we look at the way the words are used within the text. So we're going to see another example of that here in a minute. Verse 31, and it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, we talked about earlier in an early episode how Ahith Ahithophel was probably Bathsheba's grandfather. And so this is the reason why he's with Absalom. He felt like his, his granddaughter had been abused. He, you know, her, her um, husband had been murdered. And so he takes a side and he takes a side with the man who stood up for the rights of an abused woman. And that's very significant. So David's prayer here is actually important because it's a demonstration of how extreme this situation is in his in David's eyes. And Zamora points out that these almost exclamatory prayers that are just kind of, you know, cried out in the heat of the moment 
really does drive home how extreme the situation is. And we just are getting the slightest hint at how value Ahithophel's um, counsel is. Because if we, if we jump forward into 2 Samuel 16, verse 23, the writer gets more explicit. And he tells us that Ahithophel's uh, counsel is like one consulting the word of God and that he's esteemed by both David and Absalom. So this guy is pretty smart. He, he's got it together, and David actually fears the fact that Absalom is getting counsel from someone who has this much credibility. Now, the, the word here is not what we expect, because if you remember, we talked about the word uh, for foolish, Nabal, back when we talked about Abigail and Nabal. This is not that word, and that's important. Uh, the word here is sakal, which isn't your general word for foolishness. Uh, it's, it's used to denote more of a spiritual foolishness. So, so David is even acknowledging that almost the divine origins of Ahithophel's uh, wisdom and, and uh, counsel. In some places, it seems to be presented as uh, the, the opposite of understanding. It pretty much is what it boils down to. So if you're a prophet, you have wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. These are the three main elements of a prophet um, or attributes of a prophet. And this is the opposite of that. Now, when Isaiah uses the same word, he, he writes it uh, in, a, in a prophetic um, utterance that is written poetically. And now, if you remember when we talk about Hebrew poetry, a lot of times what you have are those parallelisms where the second line explains the first line. So I'm going to read the verse where Isaiah uses this word, and it's Isaiah 44, 25, and it's speaking of God, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of the diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. Now, when he says in that first line that he makes fools of the diviners, uh, this is the word used to describe David in 1 Samuel 21, 14. And that's when David pretends to be mad with, uh, whenever he's hiding among the Philistines and he pretends to be a lunatic out of his mind and the king mm -hmm. sends him home. So the first line is not just foolish, but, but mad. That it's, it's mad lunacy. It, it's something beyond just being stupid or crazy. Uh, and so the second line where it says, makes their knowledge foolish, this is our word in our passage here in 2 Samuel 15. It's sakal. And so there's this equivalency between foolishness and madness that the writer of Isaiah is saying is going on with these two words. So if we take that understanding back to David's prayer, and you know this is that, that first rule that we follow, that scripture interprets scripture. So the scripture here is telling us, if you take this principle back and you see how the word's used in Samuel, now David's not just saying, may his counsel be turned to foolishness, may it be turned to madness. May it be something greater than just, you know, something ridiculous or off the wall, but it actually it is just completely beyond any kind of understanding or, or wise counsel. So now, now here's ahead. something. Um, just as I was reading through, that I thought of on this was, um, it, it makes me think of the event with Ahab. For one, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when God's consulting the divine council and uh, says that he, you know, he sends a, a spirit to be a lying spirit in the mm -hmm. prophet's mouths, 
Um, so there's there's that. The the other thing that that I kind of think of, and and this is especially pertinent to um, what you just said, that you have. Um, I haven't said his name out loud. Um, <laughs> Ahithophel. 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 <laughs> um, I need to practice all the names before we go on. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, Ahithophel, you were talking about, you know, he and his, he's siding with the guy who stood up for someone who was abused. Mm-hmm. And now that's a good thing. It seems right. like a good thing, except in this instance. Because mm-hmm. there's other factors going on that we may or may not know about. But <laughs> so, and this is also where it kind of relates to Job, because we would kind of think that there's this moral quandary that God's put himself in if he's backing David, um, the same way that Job goes, man, you're treating me unfairly, you're treating me immorally, mm-hmm. unjustly. And God says, well, no, I'm ruling the universe with wisdom right. and his wisdom that we don't understand. Um, so I kind of see a, a parallel with that as well. Kind of the opposite side else. of the coin. Yeah, well, th- there's that, but it, it's kind of, it's, it's not the opposite side of the coin. It's kind of, a, it's basically a similar situation. Well, I guess it is kind of the opposite side, but it's kind of the, <laughs> the human actor in this going what they think is wise, but God's mm-hmm. doing what right. is wise in his eyes. And that's something that, um, so a few years back, um, i I worked for, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, I may have, but I worked for a little while for a company that wrote sermon outlines for pastors who were busy <laughs> doing administrative stuff and needed yeah. a, a, a quick lesson to be put together. Um, so, which is kind of funny because now there's a whole bunch of uh, people who are getting in trouble for using other people's <laughs> sermons and not citing them. So I'm not sure where that falls in here. I'm not, but this was not the same thing. This was right. Like, this wasn't plagiarism. <laughs> this wasn't plagiarism. You would actually go and purchase in a, a lesson uh, that it wasn't pre-made. Like it was, it was an outline with some study points that basically anyone who is familiar enough with their Bible should have known, but they were just mm-hmm. kind of put in order of like, Hey, here's some easy stuff to teach on. Here's, you know, mm-hmm. something if like, if you had a crazy busy week, you could just log on and download this. It was, I don't know. A jumping it, off point. It, it jump, yeah, yeah. You you'd have to fill in a whole bunch to get it to a full like half hour, forty five minute, one hour sermon, however long you preach for. Um, but twenty anyway. minutes, come on, man, get with twenty the times. minutes, yeah, <laughs> seven minutes, the adult attention span. Yeah. Um, but the <laughs> anyway, but moving during on. That, I, I wrote, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I wrote a series on uh, proverbs, and it was I don't remember how many weeks it was. I have probably have it saved on here somewhere. Um. But one of the things that if you look in Proverbs, you find Lady Folly and you find Lady Wisdom. Mm-hmm. What a lot of people don't realize, and I haven't seen anyone else point this out when you go through the book, Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom oftentimes are doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They are standing at the street corners calling to people to come mm-hmm. to them to, yeah. so that they can do whatever it is that they do. Right. And I haven't seen that pointed out in, in a lot of other things here. So this is, you have um, a high... Ahithophel. Oh my gosh. Ahithophel um, is, uh, is doing what he thinks is wise, and it's in, in, in his human side of things. Mm-hmm. God's doing what he thinks is wise on his side of things by right. taking care of his anointed, 
And this really puts us in a really awkward place when we're looking at the text going, okay, who's really making the right decisions here? And then mm-hmm. the question becomes, is, you know, if, if uh, Ahithophel and the Absalom are doing what they believe is right, according to their best interpretation of mm-hmm. Torah, mm-hmm. but they're doing what's wrong, how much of, of their own mistake is God going to overlook? How much grace is there for people in those situations? And so you have a whole lot of questions that come out of a very short amount of, of uh, space here. Yeah, well, you know, and, and David's sin is really a stumbling block for a lot of people today, because I hear a lot of women who have been a victims of abuse saying, you know, how can we understand David? How can we, we accept a God who says this guy's after his own heart? And so, you know, there, there's consequences and there's, there's problems with, with David's actions. And I don't think God, you know, obviously God doesn't let him get by without any kind of consequences. And so, right. you know, there's, I think what we're going to see as we're going forward is I think Absalom's heart was in the right place to begin with. I, I think he really felt, you know, compassion and outrage for the abuse of his sister, and he didn't want that to go unaddressed. But he let it turn to bitterness. I mean, why mm-hmm. didn't he go and talk to David and say, hey, Dad, you need to do something? Why didn't he appeal to God? Because, you know, that's one of the things I've noticed about Absalom's story is, we don't have him talking to God. We don't have him praying and seeking wisdom for himself. He's consulting other people when he does start to make these mm-hmm. moves. And you know, we can't overlook the victim. I, I, I don't think that, that that is right. I think we have you know multiple scriptures where it shows that we have to show mercy and compassion for victims. But if we allow our outrage to become too great, then we slide into sin. And we're going to see where Absalom does the very thing that outraged him to begin with. And he, he becomes the monster he was fighting against. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we have to, to be careful not to overstep those bounds. And that's the reason why we have to trust God's judgment on this, on, on you know, any kind of uh, situation. Because we have a lot of situations in our own world today where victims, you know, I'm not just talking about sexual abuse. I mean, just victims across the board. They, mm-hmm. they need help and they need support no matter what crime was committed against them. And we can't become the monster to fight the monster. We, we've got to, you know. Yeah. Well, well and I guess if, if you carry on, if you, sorry to interrupt, but if you, I guess if you carry on uh, in the story, it does, you do get into that part where it does expose the, the hypocrisy of Absalom and where you get into David and there is, there is the repentance side of it and the, exactly. the true repentance. And so I think that, you know, kind of goes back to that point. But when you're in the middle of the story, you're going, oh, my gosh, what's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it seems incongruent, but it's also, you know, God digs deeper. He looks farther into things. And, and, and like I said, the, the you know, and, and I, I know it, it, is, it is a tough, this is a tough thing to get around mm-hmm. and, and figure out how it is this fits into our Bible and into God's plan and into all these other things. And, but I do think we, you know, we have to hold that in balance and, you know, kind of where I land with it is the repentance side of it, that there is a change and that 
also we look at it that, and I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, where if you have a if you have a worldview where repentance doesn't exist, then there's no hope for anybody. Right. And there's and and just us this idea of and like I think the double sided sort of the self acceptance movement that that's <laughs> you know this is just who I am. This is just all I can be. And this is, and I, I just delight in that. Well, then your opinion then is anybody else who does bad things, that's all they are. That's all they can be. They just delight in that. And then there's no hope for anyone else. You can't forgive. You can't, they, they can't repent. You can't forgive. Right. It's just. Well, there's nothing to that, be forgiven. There's nothing to yeah, repent there's, of. There's no, there's no absolution, I guess, is the. Mm-hmm what I'm going for there. And, and you can't live in a world like that. There has to be some kind of mercy and, and forgiveness. And that's where we, grace comes in and Jesus and, and all those <laughs> right. things. Well, and, and that's, that's the thing, because ultimately what that viewpoint does, if you take it out to, you know, if you completely adhere to that, that viewpoint, there's no ability to have real human relationship right. because there's no way for the give and take that's involved in a relationship can actually take place. Because, I mean, how do you even discipline a three-year-old who's throwing a fit because they didn't get the candy they wanted in the checkout line? That's just who he is. That's how he was made. That's what he wants. Right. So, I mean, it begins with, you know, we look at big issues and we go, oh, well, you know, this is is totally defining a person. And then we we take it down to smaller issues if we want to be consistent. And we realize if it's ridiculous— for the for us to let a three year old act this way, then it's ridiculous for us to expect it to be okay for adults to do whatever they want. And you know, being an adult, you know, part of what I was re- trained when I was growing up is being adult is learning to take responsibility for the decisions you make. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, before we start telling dad stories, um, verse thirty two. <laughs> While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to. It came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. Now, lots of stuff in this verse. I, I actually spent like two days off and on like going into stuff uh, because there's just a lot of good stuff. This is, these are the verses that make me happy. So uh, verse, the first point is the ark's back in Jerusalem, yet God is worshipped on Mount Olives. And so one of the things this reveals to us is the fact that Israel is getting something right. They have realized that they don't need a physical, tangible symbol to worship God. God is available wherever God desires to be available. And that's huge because every other religion at this point, we're looking at the need for idols. We're looking for the need for talismans, amulets, little figurines, whatever, something that that spirit of the God that is being worshipped can inhabit and provide power through. And so Israel is getting something really, really right here in this moment. And I think that's a really key detail that we could overlook if we aren't paying attention to it. And if you want to go deeper into this, uh, Bodies of God by Benjamin Somner, really good, available on Amazon. Enjoyed that. So the other thing to notice is David's refuge in the time of danger is where God is worshipped. And, you know, that's a huge lesson right there, that whenever we're in danger, we need to be moving towards that place of worship. And for most of us, it's not physical danger. We aren't running from a guy with a sword. 
we're, we're dealing with people who are just getting on our nerves or draining us emotionally. Now, you started to say something. go off. <laughs> I, I, I had a whole, a whole diatribe, but I should, I, I'll pass for now. Well, yeah, but, you know, getting to that point of discipline where we do just, you know, things are going wrong and life is hard. Do we go to that place of worship? Is that our instinct? Is that the impulse that lives within us? Or do we just get outraged and offended? Uh, you know, that that's a discipline that we have to learn. But we're also introduced to this guy, Hushai the Archite. Uh, we, we haven't heard of him before, but he appears as if he's a direct answer to David's prayer in the verse um, that we left off with. You know, may, may the Lord turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. So... God has sent this guy to David. Now, the first debate is, what is an archite? We, we don't know. Uh, there, there's lots of different theories out there. Now, Zamora says that he is from the archite clan of Benjamin, and he bases this on Joshua 16.2, where the, the Benjamites are given this partic- particular piece of land where the archites lived. And so now he is being... Um, identified by his geography. And, you know, we've seen that before, because if we go back to 2 Samuel 4, we're introduced to Banna and Rechab, who were uh, from um, Beroth, which was part of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we're given this really detailed account how they are Benjaminites who live in this area, but they're still addressed as Gittites. The problem is, we have to ask whether that section, uh, 2 Samuel 4, is that the exception or the rule? Are we told that there are Benjaminites living in this area because we need to know that they are really Israelites from the tribe of Benjamin or that just happened to live there? Or is this the, you know, if that's the, the exception where we have to have the distinction pointed out, then all of a sudden Hushai is not an Israelite. He is a, somebody who is descended from the Archites. If it's the rule, if it's telling us how the rule works, that now all of Israel, uh, all the Israelites who live in these various geographic locations are going to be identified not just by their clan, but by their geographic location, now this guy could be a Benjaminite. So uh, how you choose to answer that, well, have fun with that, because the rabbis actually claim the opposite. They, they claim something totally different. They claim that he's actually from the tribe of Joseph. And they base it on that same scripture, uh, Joshua 16.2, that Zamora used to get him uh, to be an archite from the tribe of Benjamin. And so we really don't know who he was. And I bring all that up to let you know that we have all of this confusion. Now, one of the fun little pieces that I found when I was doing research is that the CIA, and yes, that's the CIA as in the Central Intelligence Agency, has released a paper on Hushai, the archite, and they call him the first influence operative on record. So he is actually, an influence operative is somebody who's placed inside an enemy camp and is supposed to give disinformation in, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to lead people astray and hmm. to, to influence the decisions and the actions that they take. So David prays this prayer and God sends him Hushai and David immediately knows what he should do with Hushai. Now, 
the um, the writer of Samuel, what's really interesting about him is in his view, faith is not an excuse to be inactive. And I we see examples of that. When David had faith in God, he, he didn't say, oh, God's going to kill Goliath. He said, I've got to get out on the field and I've got to do my part. When uh, Jonathan was getting ready to face the Philistines, he didn't go, okay, God's going to wipe out the Philistines. He says, no, I'm going to go up and I'm going to meet the Philistines if that's what God would have me to do. So when David sees Hushai the Archite, he basically says, ah, this is God making a way for me to take an active part. And it's in this person of, uh, of this archite. So the way he approaches is significant. Once again, we've got a torn coat. We have dirt on his head. Both, again, signs of mourning, which immediately tells us this guy is loyal to David. He's upset about Absalom coming in and taking over Jerusalem. And we also need to remember the significance of these symbols as presented in Samuel. I've said it several times. The clothing itself could almost be a character in the book of Samuel. Because if we remember, we have our first torn coat in 1 Samuel 4.12. And that's when the man of Benjamin comes into the camp, and comes into the city where Eli is. He's got the torn coat. He has dirt on his head. He's announcing that the Ark of the Covenant has been Um, captured by the Philistines. Eli's sons are killed that day. Eli dies that day. And God is effectively taken into exile because the the ark is taken on this tour of the Philistine cities. So right there is our first announcement of the, the, the clothing. And it is when Eli ceases to be the spiritual leadership of Israel. The second time is in 1 Samuel 15, 27. And it says, as Samuel turned away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Now, this is when Saul had kept King Agag alive. You know, he was supposed to kill him and supposed to kill everything that belonged to the Amalekites. And God said, nope, this is not how it's going to be. I reject you as king. And when Samuel delivered the word that Saul was rejected, so we have this change of leadership again, he reached out and grabbed that coat and tore um, Samuel's coat. The third time is 1 Samuel 24, 4, and that's when David cut the robe, the corner of the robe from Samuel's, uh, from Saul's robe. And this is, again, a reenactment, a re- an affirmation of what Samuel had said to Saul earlier, and it was supposed to mirror, the two accounts were supposed to mirror each other, where the, the corner of the robe gets torn. The fourth time Second Samuel 1, 2, and it says, On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So this was the Amalekite who was bringing the news that Saul had died. And remember, he even claimed that he had killed Saul because Saul was already dying. So, again, related to that change in leadership. The fifth time is Second Samuel 13, 19. And again, where that verse was Tamar, where she's got the torn robes the dirt on her head, and she's crying in the street. So here we are at the sixth time where we have torn clothes in the book of Samuel. Now, obviously, some of the, um, the accounts are more closely tied than others, but they're all related, and they're all related to a change of leadership. Eli no longer being the priest, Saul rejected as the king, David replaying Saul's initial rejection, Saul's death so David could become king, and Absalom now taken the, taking the throne from David. Now, 
if we aren't paying close attention, our first response is, well, Tamar doesn't really fit. She, she doesn't really belong to this change in leadership theme that we've got going on with the, the torn clothes. But that's why we have to make sure we read Tamar's story as part of the narrative. We can't just set it aside as a one-off event that has no tie to the rest of the story. And so often, excuse me, when we have these very disturbing um, accounts in the Bible, that's what we have a tendency to do. We'll read up to that chapter, then we set it aside, we, don't, we skip over it, we, we don't include it in our, in our Bible studies because it's too much, or we pull it out and we study just that story alone without putting it within the narrative context. Right. And when we do that, we do a disservice to the writer of the story who has, I mean, we've already seen how the writer of Samuel He does this phenomenal work where he interweaves all of these connections and he makes sure that he's presented us with a cohesive story. He did that so we would have this. So we do a disservice to him by not honoring his work. We do a disservice to ourselves because we're missing out on what is being presented. And so we we see if we if we're very careful that to hold Tamar's story in place and in the proper position within the story. We understand Tamar's torn clothing, the clothing that Absalom finds Tamar in when he goes to her. This is the beginning of the rebellion. This is the beginning of Absalom rising up to try to take the throne from David. She is very much a part. She's the reason there's a change in the leadership at this point. And you know, even though her names disappeared, I think we still feel her in this narrative in so many ways. And so I'm going to come back to another point in just a second. Uh, well, no, actually, I'm, this is why I shouldn't write my notes in sleep. If I just write my notes and present, we're good. But when I sleep between that time, then we have a problem. But <laughs> notice Hushai, when he shows up, Okay, he's not in a measured uniform. That's what the guy in 1 Samuel 4, whenever he comes to Eli, he's in a measured uniform. He's in clothing that, that has this, um, a specific function. Uh, he's not in the pro- prophet robes that, that Samuel wears. He is not wearing the robe of a king. He's actually wearing a katonet. Now, a katonet is a very rare word in the book of Samuel. Matter of fact, there's only one other person in the book of Samuel who wears a katonet, and that is Tamar. And so Tamar and Hushai are described as wearing the same kind of clothing. And so the writer has used different words to describe the different clothing that the people are wearing to denote their status, but also to connect them and to distinguish them. And so when you have the, you know, the the soldier. The, the prophet, the king, the random guy, Amalekite, off the street, and now you have two people wearing the same thing. They're supposed to be connected because that's how the writer of Samuel works. And so they both are wearing, the, you know, Tamar puts ashes on her head. This guy puts dirt on his head. And I think it's really interesting in the Bible overall, a katonet is only worn by Joseph, Tamar, Hushai, and the priest. 
And so whenever you have that, I mean, that kind of makes you stop and think, what exactly is being expressed through this, through this particular kind of garment? What we can know, and know without a doubt, is that Hushai is important because only important people wear a katonet. And he was probably uh, one of David's royal officials. David definitely knows him. And David has some idea about what he's capable of and how he will best play a part in David's plans. So moving forward with his story, verse 33, David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in the time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Now, a lot of information about Hushai here. He's not a warrior. He's not a fighter. He's not a soldier. He's not dressed like one. He's dressed like a royal official. David obviously doesn't see him as someone who's going to add to his party. He thinks that, you know, just is basically another mouth to feed. And he actually puts some value on Hushai's counsel because he thinks that Hushai is going to be able to stand up against Ahithophel. And he wants to get Hushai next to Absalom. And so this is some really great, um, some really great intrigue, court intrigue going on here that's more fitting for what we might think of, uh, you know, uh, the royal families of Europe whenever we study that part of history. But yeah, and I, I know there, I know there's no mention of it here, but I'm kind of wondering uh, about Hushai's age because, or, or, you know, because if he, if, if David says that you're going to be a burden to me, if I go, if you go with me, mm-hmm. um, but I, but you can be of use to me if you go back to the city, I kind of wonder about if, if that's, you know, if there's an injury, if he's a exceptional young man, if he's an old man, um, you know, just something like that, because you know, we've seen that David's a good military strategist. So, I mean, it would be believable if this was an old man and not some AB, AB, able-bodied <laughs> person uh, that David might send him back. And right. so that, that's kind of what I'm wondering about is that, you know, the story has to be believable. Well, and, and the thing is, we already have Ittai the Gittite who showed up with women and children who have joined him. So mm-hmm. age is a really good possibility here because not only is he, you know, does David think he's going to be burdened on the trip, he also thinks that Hushai is smart enough to outwit, outwit Ahithophel, whose counsel is like when consulting the word of God. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think, you just don't envision some young guy here. I mean, this, mm-hmm. he's got something going for him, and there's more to the story than what's being included. And, you know, and that's where the little speculations come in, because, you know, a lot of times we think, oh, the Bible just tells us everything we need to know or whatever. But think about trying to cast for a part. When you, when you think about characters in the Bible and you're trying to envision what it looked like, think about if you were a movie producer. What actors would you put in the part? Why did you choose that person? And mm-hmm. so, you know, you would think with him, there's got to be some reason David thinks, no, I, I've got a better use for you in Jerusalem. So it could be age uh, that would slow them down. Uh, it could be just that he was, 
you know, maybe he wasn't a hardy dude. Maybe he he wasn't the outdoors kind. Maybe he was used to staying on the cushions in the in the king's palace, whatever. And all of that comes into play. And because again, these are real people. And so you've got to be smart about this sort of thing. And yeah, or, or, or what was was David being strategic here, or or, or was the guy going to be a bird? And he's like, I got an extra special mission <laughs> just for you, and it just happened to work out like that. You know, God's funny that way. It, it, a lot of times, whenever I think I'm, you know, just being cute, he he's like, oh, okay, let's let's show you what I can do with this. So, uh, so this is where you really wish you could be in on the conversations. And, and see what was going on to hear how a lot of this stuff was delivered. <laughs> exactly. So oh, I've got a cat trying to play with cords. Okay. So, um, but what I find to be interesting about this is we also have another throwback here because David is asking Hushai to pretend. Well, we've already had two accounts of pretense. Amnon pretends to be ill. Because mm-hmm. the wise man told him to. Then Joab tells the woman of Tekoa to pretend to be in mourning. And so we have this third um, use of pretense within the scripture where people are trying to get what they want. And so, you know, with Amnon, obviously, it is completely condemned. With Joab, there's kind of that fuzzy, you know, there's, there's no implicit critique, but there's no implicit approval of what he does either. And now here's David, and we, we see this as being part of God's plan. And so, you, again, you see that, like you were talking with Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom, where we have the same actions, but they're only being differentiated by the motivation for them. Why are you doing this? And so um, I think that's kind of interesting. And Hushai, I mean, he's playing a dangerous game here because Absalom if he catches on to what Hushai's doing, I mean, it's death. I mean, just kill you now. I mean, that, that's not a problem in this day and age. And we already saw that Absalom, he's not afraid to kill people. And, mm-hmm. you know, if, if Hushai says the wrong thing and seems disloyal to David, then he can be killed on the grounds of treason to David. And, you know, Absalom, you know, how dare you betray my father? Or if he is seen as not being loyal to Absalom, he can be seen guilty of treason of the new king. So this is really a dangerous situation that Hushai is walking in on. And, you know, this takes a level of faith and courage on his part that I think we can miss if we're too focused on David. I mean, these people who are with David are taking their lives into their own hands. They're trusting David and they're trusting God too. But they're saying, yes, we do believe that David is the appointed king of Israel. And that's, that's big. I mean, I don't know many of us who would say, I'm going to leave everything behind because I think this is the guy God wants in charge. And I, I know there's people who've done that in this day and age, and we usually call them victims of cults, but that's a whole other story. But um, you know, now David's got a full-fledged plan in place. He's got um, the priest who are supposed to be listening. We've got Hushai, who's an agent of influence. We have, um, you know, the ark is back where it belongs. So, and then he's got fighters with him from Ittai the Gittite. And so in verse 36, this is still David um, talking. He says, Are not Zadok and Abathar the priest with you? Ahimaaz, sorry, 
Zadok's son, Jonathan, Abathar's son, and by them you shall send me anything. It, you shall send to me everything you hear. So now we know why the boys were mentioned earlier. We talked about that in a previous verse. They're mentioned, but we really don't know what part they play until we get to this part. In this part, they're going to be the ones who they can travel back and forth. The, the sons of the priest going back and forth between the king's palace and the, and the temple, no big deal. If the priest leaves to get word to uh, David, then that draws attention. If they've got boys with them, what do boys do anyway with their free time whenever you live in the country? You run around the hillside. You chase the rabbits. You shoot the squirrels with a slingshot. Nobody cares if the boys are, are going in and out of the city, but they're going to become the couriers for Hushai's messages to David. So, and Hushai, being one, one of the members of the royal court, going to the temple to provide sacrifices, to worship, to take you know, things from the king, that would have been normal too. So everything looks like it's going to work out. Absalom has no reason to suspect any of these people. So verse 27. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So I think it was something like 10 times that Hushai is described as David's friend. However, it's not the typical word for friend. It's like a one-letter difference. And because of this, um, Arbanel, one of the, the um, medieval rabbinic uh, commentators, he says that it is a, um, a title or a position within the court, that basically a friend of the king would be someone who gives the king wise counsel and someone who the king could confide in. but. I, you know, there's some debate here because Zamora points out in 2 Samuel 16, 17, David is Hushai's friend as well. And that's the typical word for friend. So the, there seems to be, maybe there was like a royal court position for somebody who's a friend, but then there could be with the second where David is Hushai's friend and Hushai's not just David's friend, that there is a relational aspect to uh, Hushai and David. And so, where are we at? And, you know, I, I made the note here that this is one of those times that I think we could kind of miss the forest for the trees because we could get caught up in the grammar and the rules and the vocabulary and all of that. The truth is, this guy left Israel in torn clothing, dirt on his head, basically announcing to the world, I am grieved that David is off the throne. I'm grieved David's, uh, that Absalom's taking over. I'm going to follow my king because I'm loyal to him. So mm-hmm. whether or not the vocabulary holds up, big whoop. We, we know Hushai is David's supporter. And that's the important, um, important bit of information. Now, we do have a little bit of a clue on the timeline here because Hushai enters Jerusalem as Absalom does. So he makes it back in time to change his clothes, wash his hair, and, and act like everything's okay. Now, in, verse, in chapter 16, moving forward, we're going to meet some more people. Now, everybody in 15 has pretty much been loyal to David. We, we like them. We know where they stand. They've stated their intent. In chapter 16... 
the people we meet aren't going to be so admirable. They're going to have agendas. They're going to have a bias. They, they aren't going to be uh, as open. And this is where we begin to see that division within the kingdom that I was talking about at the beginning of the episode. And so what they do is they begin to tell us Israel isn't as cohesive of a nation as we might have thought that they were. And we need to be remembering, too, that during this time, every step that David takes further from Jerusalem is putting him regaining the throne in more danger. And it's less and less likely that he's going to be able to recover from this. If he had stayed close, then there would be a little bit more hope. So, Mm -hmm. um, I want to go ahead. I've got a few minutes here. We'll unpack as much as we can. When David passed a little beyond the summit, Ziva, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and the skin of wine. So we met Ziva and Mephibosheth back in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Ziva was described as a servant of the house of Saul. And when David had asked, is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? Ziva's the one that says, yes, Mephibosheth's alive. By the way, he's lame. He can't be king because he is lame. And we, we also learned that, uh, so not only, is, sorry, so Ziva is a friend of Mephibosheth. He knows him quite well. But then we also learned that Ziva has 15 sons and 20 servants. So this guy comes with a pretty powerful household on his own. And in this exchange, when David finally gets to meet Mephibosheth, he makes Ziva Mephibosheth's servant. And he says that Ziva's going to work Mephibosheth's land. And it was based on these events that happened in chapter 9 that the presumption would be, if you have a servant bringing all of this food and these donkeys out to meet you, you're going to, to think that it was the master of the house that sent these things to the king. It, it's not the mm-hmm. servant bringing something. I mean, Ziva's got nothing at this point. Everything he has right. belongs to Mephibosheth. And so this makes Mephibosheth's um, absence rather conspicuous. And now we know the obvious answer. The obvious answer is Mephibosheth is lame. He's lame in both his feet. He can't walk. You, this is not a guy you take on a road trip when most of the road trips involve walking. And so um, the thing, the thing but is... But Ziva showed up with donkeys. He did. <laughs> well, could have ridden one of those possibly. It, he And that actually brings up a good point, because notice everyone in David's party, they're on foot. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you live in a city within Jerusalem, where do you keep your royal horses and stables and stuff? Outside the city. Mm-hmm. They've got to have a place to graze. So the, David's family hadn't even had a chance to gather up their own uh, mules and horses to ride, mm-hmm. or even their camels. So this is why they're on foot. Now, why could Ziva bring donkeys? Because he served Mephibosheth. Why would Mephibosheth have donkeys? Because he's crippled. He's lame. He needs these donkeys in order to get around. He would have had them for even a short trip across the city. And so when Ziva steals the stuff, and I'm you know giving away the plot here a little bit, when Ziva takes the stuff from Mephibosheth, he is literally taking what Mephibosheth needs to survive what he needs to function mm-hmm. with every day. So 
we're getting some insight into who Ziva is right off the bat. And it's going to be even more obvious as we move forward. And so I, I love the fact that, you know, these little details are in here because when you stop and put everything again back into context, then you begin to understand that the writer is giving you a lot of information in a very small space of time. Now, I did want to comment real quick, and we'll just wrap up here. But if you notice, the list of foods is very similar to what Abigail brought um, to David. And so mm -hmm. the fact that you've got this similarity it is good because what, what you wind up with is you begin to see that David can actually be swayed by food. He is definitely a man of, um, of great appetites on many different uh, fronts. So anyway, let's wrap it up there and we'll uh, okay. come back next yeah, week and like, continue. Yeah, it seems like a good place to break. Well, um, yeah, the plot here is just nuts. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, and I, I highly suggest, um, I actually, um, I listened to this a couple times today as a refresher just to get me back into it um, on the 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 version Bible app, it has where we can play it. Just listen to it so you're not distracted by the verse breaks and things like that. Mm -hmm. it, if you're listening to it just unfold, you're, it's just like, oh my gosh, this is intense. So It really is. Um, lots, of, lots of political intrigue going on here, but it's just, oftentimes when we read it, we tend to read it like it's a history textbook, and we are thinking, oh, names and dates, and you know, just <laughs> all this stuff. No, it's, it's a really intense story. So, um, Hopefully everyone out there is following along and enjoying it. I know Emily mentioned giving away the plot. Hopefully you're reading ahead so you, you have an idea of where it's going um, because it is just incredible. If you're not... The one thing I figured out recently, and I'm going to share this, uh, you can set the the, uh, the Uversion app to play at double speed, and that's one of the things that frustrated me trying to listen to it is the guy who reads it reads it kind of slow, but um, but I, I know that was by design to, to try to make everything very clear, but you can put it double speed. And you can go right through stuff real quickly. There you um, go. And so maybe that's why it seems more intense. I don't know. <laughs> but it really does. So, um, But if you want to be uh, part of that, uh, the conversation coming up, Raven Creek SC as the social media handle. Find us there. Um, RavenCreekSC.com is the website. You can find us there. Find show notes. And you can find other shows that we um, support and host there. We love having these people around. We've got... Um, Joshua T. Sherman, the T? No, I'm not sure. But Joshua Sherman uh, with Tending Our Nets. We've got Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. Uh, we've got Commentarians with Joe Zaragoza and Answers to Giant Questions with Tim Stedman. So, um, you know, go check those out. Be part of the conversation. And it looks like I've actually lost Emily on Skype. So I'm just going to wrap it up and tell everyone, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Uh, have a great week. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next